turn your attention this morning to the book of James chapter 2. Just for, just very briefly, before I open the text and read it, it reminds you that this book is dealing with what we would call true religion, true Christianity, and uh, he is actually giving us something of the working out of that that ought to be found in our lives. And thus, here is a check for us to see whether we have this true and pure religion or whether we've been deceived. And so, let us take heed to these things. So, that's just the general overview of the, of the whole book. It is dealing much with practical Christianity. And that, of course, is where we see true religion being worked out in our lives. I would like for us to read, though, verses 1 through 13. And my text is verses 8 through 13 this morning. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment. And ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, uh, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you, and draw ye before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin, and are convinced of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. For he that said, Do not commit adultery, said also, Do not kill. Now if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy. And mercy rejoiceth against judgment. It is very important in looking at these particular passages, or our present passage this morning, just what James has been preaching upon in the passages before, or what we would call the context. James has been warning his readers in this chapter against, a, uh, against having a respect of persons. And he forewarns us here that this is not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 1. In other words, if we live like this and act like this and have respect of persons and respect the rich better than we would the poor, that's not what the faith of Christ is about. And that's what verse 1 is basically saying there. I know it looks a little confusing, but again, it is a hard text to translate. So if we have a hard time in English then it's no, or in the Greek, no wonder it's hard in the English. But we see here that's the warning. This is the thing that he wakes us up with. This is not what being a Christian is like. We are not to show favoritism because of circumstances. And James has been warning us here then very vividly in regards to having a respect of persons. And then he illustrates this, uh, having a respect of persons and saying what it's like in verses 2 and 3. And he gives a very 
very good illustration. He says, you know, if someone comes into your assembly who's rich and you treat him differently than someone who comes in poor, well, then that's a respected person. You're being very partial in that. Then in verse 4, he reasons with them that this kind of thing truly is a partiality. You shouldn't be living that way. You shouldn't be thinking that way and you shouldn't be talking that way, he tells us. And then he further reasons with us on this and the fact that God has chosen the poor as we see in verse 5. God's election of grace doesn't contain a lot of rich folks. God's election of grace contains the common folks, the poor, the norm of society. And so he gives us this reason as to why we should not show partiality because that's how God is himself. Sixthly, or in this, in verses 6 and 7, he again, excuse me, hammers this point across that stating how that the very ones that you show partiality unto are the ones who mistreat you. In other words, wake up. You hear that saying today. Don't you see what's going on? The very folks that you want to honor and you would give the best seats in your assembly in reality are the folks who mistreat you in the civil courts and persecute you and blaspheme that name by which you're called. Now, he says that again to wake them up to the reality of what they've been doing or what they could be doing. And so, as we come to this present passage, I want to preach upon this very thing this morning and to realize we're not really away from the text at all in what we've seen last time. James' aim here is now to show the sinfulness of the conduct of being a respecter of person. And the way that he does this is to show us that it is a violation of God's law. So, in verses 1 through 7, he states the problem. He also gives us some very good reasons why we shouldn't continue in this problem. But now, in verses 8 through 13, he gets it even closer to home, he says, look, what you're doing is sin. And the reason why you know it's sin, as all good Reformed do, is because it's a violation of God's law. And so this is his point today, and this is what we're going to look at. So the first thing we see in verses 8 and 9 is to have, is to have this respect of persons, as described in our chapter, is to transgress the law. Look at verses 8 and 9. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So we see that our first point here is to have this respect of persons as described once again by James in our context is to transgress the law of God. And hence, then, it is a sin. Now, verse 8 states very plainly that the royal law, by Scripture definition, is to love your neighbor as yourself. So, not only is that the definition, but we would also say that would be the application. To love your neighbor as yourself is to fulfill this law. That is to fulfill the royal law. That is God's law. God's kingly law. Jesus, you remember, was asked on an occasion, what is the the greatest point of the law? Look in uh, Matthew 22. 
And beginning in verse 34, But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a, a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Or the great commandment. Which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love thy Lord God, the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and greatest or great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments, Jesus says, hang all the law and the prophets. He summed it up in another way and on the Sermon on the Mount is that you treat others as you would like to be treated. And he says that's the law and the prophets. So if you want a good working definition of the law and the prophets and of the moral law, the royal law, the Ten Commandments, and summing it all up into that, we would say to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, you can, you can see the reasoning here, I think. If, if we break the commandments... I really do not demonstrate true love. If I break, and I'm just making this division because that's what all the people do when they talk about the law. If I break the first table of the law, as they call it, then I am transgressing or not showing true love to God. If I transgress the second table, if there is really that distinction in the Word of God, then I am sinning against my neighbor. I'm not showing true love to my neighbor. You see, the law is the concrete standard of what it means to love God and to love man. And this is a a problem, I'm afraid, the New Covenant people today, I don't even want to give them that term because we are New Covenant. But in reality, they call themselves New Covenant. They're New Covenant theology. They want to rule out the law of God as a standard for righteousness. And they just want to go to this idea, well, love is the standard. And we're not in disagreement with that, by the way. We think love is. But love has to be defined. And how does God's Word define what it means to love God and to love your fellow man? Well, we can go to the Bible and see this. We don't have any question about it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. So if you want to know the temperature of your love towards God and man, then you examine your walk in light of the Ten Commandments, in the light of the commandments of God. For this is the love of God. Here he's going to give us a definition, verse 3. That we keep His commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Also look across the page, or at least in my Bible, Second John 5 and 6. And now I beseech thee, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment unto thee, but that which we had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk after his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning. You should walk in it. Yes, we're to walk in love. But what does that mean? How is that carried out on an everyday, simple way of doing it? Well, it's done by keeping the commandments of God. I could not have an idol in my home, bow down to it, and in the same breath say that I love God. It wouldn't be true. Why? Because I've already broken the commandment that says, Thou shalt not 
have any other gods before you. Don't make any graven images. If I take the Lord's name in vain, thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, that sort of thing. Well, I'm not demonstrating love to him, am I? I can say I love him, but if I go out and blaspheme his name, I don't love him. If I kill my neighbor, thou shalt not kill, I can't say that I love him, do I? See, there's, there's the concrete to this love aspect. It's not just, oh, I love you and I have warm fuzzies all about you when I think about you. It's going to be shown by practical obedience to the law of God. So, yes, we would agree with those of the New Covenant so-called theology that it is love, but that love has to be defined. They won't. Because if they do, that drives them back to the law again, and that they can't have. But we're not afraid, and we shouldn't be afraid. James uses the law here to speak to us in regards to love, doesn't he, in this chapter? And here, Paul is in no contradiction to James or John at this point. Look in Romans 13. I'm bringing all this out because there will be a point to this. Not only today, but also in the coming weeks. Look in Romans 13. And beginning in verse 8. Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. For this... Thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. And if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love worketh no ill to his neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Notice here Paul, in describing what it means to love, takes us right back to where? Well, if you know what these commandments are in reference to, you know that's what we call the moral law or the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue. Where do you find the commands, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal? Are they not found in Exodus chapter 20, dealing with the Ten Commandments, or Deuteronomy chapter 4, where again the Ten Commandments are spoken over again? So we see here then this divine standard of what love is. So let's go back to our text and understanding that then. He says here, if we do this, we are fulfilling the royal law. In other words, he says here, we do well. Look at verse 8. If you fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. And what he means by that last clause there, ye do well, he means you don't sin. If you fulfill the royal law, treat your neighbor as yourself, which you couldn't do if you were breaking the Ten Commandments then you've done well. Now, to put this in perspective, look at verse 9. But if you have respect to persons, say we haven't strayed from what he's talking about, is he? From verses 1 through 7. He's still dealing with the idea of having respect to persons. And he uses the law to drive home the, par- the point about this. If you have respect to To persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. 
In other words, if we have a respect to persons, if we are partial, if we treat someone who comes in the door based on their clothing aspects, then we've sinned. Being a respecter of persons, as defined by James here, is a transgression of the law, which is exactly what sin is. Ever wanted to know what sin is? You know, everybody has an opinion what sin is, don't they? Some churches set up standards, set up standards of what sins are. Uh, the nations may set up standards as to what sins may be or what moral wrongs are. But you know what really tells us what sin is? Well, let me give you the scripture for it. First John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. So how do I know if I've sinned? I go to the law and see. I take my actions and line them up with what the law of God has said. Paul says, again, showing no contradiction here with anyone else, for where no law is, there is no transgression. Here again, this is a good help to those who are creating sins in their minds when there really aren't sins, stopping and not doing things because they feel it's somehow a sin. Well, does the law of God speak against it? Now, I'm not talking about public worship, which is regulated by the principle we understand, but again, just the everyday affairs of life, which is different than public worship. If there's no law, there's no sin. So we cannot sin then. So, again, what's the standard? The law of God. Again, Paul tells us. He says, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So, again, this is what James is telling us. So, is there any contradiction thus far with Paul and James? No, they seem to be running neck and neck here in agreement. They seem to be looking in the same book when it comes to their understanding of Christian life, don't they? And brethren, when we come to the latter part of this chapter, why would we say different? Is James really teaching differently about justification than Paul is? Of course not. Absolutely not. Again, James in verse 9, the last clause says that this is... That is, by your actions, you demonstrate your sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. That is, you become guilty. You've transgressed the law by your action of having partiality one with another. Now, at this point, it seems to be, I'm not saying for exactness, but I think he may be referencing Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15, where it says, Ye shall do no unrighteousness in judgment. Thou shalt not respect the person of the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty. But in righteousness thou shalt judge thy neighbor. Well, what's the righteous standard for that? Well, we can say love, and you would be absolutely correct. But love defined in accordance to the law of God. That's Leviticus 19, verse 15. Now, the second point. Let's look at verse 10. He says, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Let me read that again because, boy, that just doesn't set well with us, does it, I think? For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. 
Now, this may not seem what we would think. This may not be the way that we would judge things in reality. Perhaps we would reason with it in another way. The idea that if I keep the whole law and yet if I break one of them, I'm suddenly guilty of all. That just doesn't, that doesn't sit well with me. But again, the standard is not me. The standard is not what I think. The standard isn't how well it fits my way of thinking. The standard is what? God. As he has revealed himself and what he thinks in the word of God. And he says here that if you transgress one point, even though you kept the other nine, you've actually transgressed all of them. Now, what does this show this by inference here? And I think a safe inference. And is this, that James sees the law here as one unit, doesn't he? He doesn't divide it up. In fact, he sees it all. He sees here an underlying principle that is obviously missed in the Jews' day and is also missed by several today in our age about this idea of the law. Now, this may be a hard saying, but nonetheless, it's true. If we keep the whole law and we break one, we're guilty of breaking the whole law. Now, James is going to illustrate this by an example in verse 11. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now, if thou commit no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. What verse 11 there is doing is illustrating his point in verse 10. That if you keep all nine, but if you break one, you're guilty of all of them. And he gives us a very concrete example. I love James and how he can just make things so plain, doesn't he? How does he explain this point? He says, well, look, if the law says don't commit adultery, and you don't, I'm using another one. But if you commit adultery and you don't kill, you've broken all the law anyway. And this is how he reasons with them. He took them to the very thing that they would have understood. Do not commit adultery. Said also, do not kill. Now, if you commit no adultery, yet if you kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. In other words, you may keep yourself morally clean and chaste. But if you hate your brother without a cause, you've broken them all. So what says kill? Well, Jesus said what? If you hate your brother without a cause, you've already killed. Or, you may not hate your brother without a cause. Be angry, excuse me, angry with your brother without a cause is how it goes. And, if you commit adultery in your head, you've already transgressed all the law. Again, that may not fit with our independent living today, but it is God's Word. That's the illustration. And it's very pointed, isn't it? Now let's see verses 12 and through 13. We see the exhortation then. We see the doctrine laid out. We see the illustration of it. And now we see the exhortation. Yeah, good reform preaching, it sounds to me. So we see here. What does he say? So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. 
Well, to James, to apply all this to their present situation and to us, what does he say here to do? Well, in light of the fact that if we show partiality, we're not showing love, and in reality, that is a transgression of the law, and if you break one point, then you're guilty of all the law, well, what do we do? Well, this is what he tells us. Then do this. First of all, he says, say and do. Now, if you think a moment, what does he mean here, say and do? Well, remember back, he had been talking about the tongue previously. Back in chapter 1 and verse 19, he told us, Wherefore, my brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. He had already introduced there something that's going to be found throughout this epistle, the tongue and the control of it. And then he says in verse 26, If any man among you seem to be religious and brideth not his tongue, and we said there the idea is to control it, not just don't say anything, well, I'll just keep my mouth shut and then I won't get in trouble. That's not what that text says. That's not what that text means. It means that you're able to control your tongue. So if you can control your tongue, that's a sign of true religion. If you do not control your tongue, that's a bad sign. And he says here, you're deceiving your own heart and your religion is in vain. And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, the tongue enter ends again. Notice, and ye have respect to him that weareth the clay clothing and say unto him. Notice how the tongue gets involved with how we have a respect of persons. You'll say to that person, well, you sit here and in this good place. And then you'll tell the person who is poor, well, you go sit over there. Or better yet, sit under my footstool. That was a sin with the tongue. That's not a controlled tongue based on the fact that you really don't love your brethren or you don't love your neighbor when you act that way. So what he tells us here then is to back us up and to think in that light. Say and do. Speak ye and so do. Don't have a tongue that would show partiality in your assembly. For that matter, anywhere. Now, again, he's going to speak about the tongue in chapter 3. And he's going to give us some more regulations about it and the troubles that we have with it. But now, again, he's just sticking it out there, reminding us of what is going on in the Christian life. So, the first application we could say to all this is, say and do. Speak and do in accordance to two things. Notice, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. That's the first thing. Well, actually, that's the second thing. I want to back up and go back to chapter 2, verse 1. Remember he says here that that's not the faith of Christ. If you act that way, you have partiality, that's not demonstrating the faith of Christ. So that would be a, a, a motivation to speak and to do what's right, wouldn't it? To think, my Christianity is being seen and open here. And right now, it's not being seen in a very good light. But the main point now, he says, more particularly, it's the law of God. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. The moral law, or excuse me, the royal law, verse 8. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. It's called the law of liberty, back up in chapter 1 and verse 25. Chapter 2, verse 12, here it's again called the law of liberty. He says this is what you need to think about. 
When that person comes to the door and he's rich, and right behind him comes a person who's poor, you better have God's law on your mind. Or what will happen? Well, you'll say and do what you shouldn't be saying and doing. But if you have it in the right perspective, then you'll say and do what is correct. And then he says that in, the, uh, in another way, you'll be judged by that law. Here we see the positive. Notice, so speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged. Not only now as we are doing it, God can chasten us. But we are to live in respect that the law does and will be a standard of judgment at the last day when we stand before God. Notice the motive in verse 13 now. For if ye shall have judgment, for he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. Here's another reason why you better say and do correctly. Because if you don't show mercy, you won't be shown mercy. If you're unmerciful in your speech, guess what? That last day, you won't be shown any mercy. If you're quick-tempered and you say things that, that should not be said in that light, in the light of what James is speaking, then don't expect mercy. Because you showed none. Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Now, this is a principle that's taught in several places in Scripture. For instance, in Proverbs 18. In verse 25. Oh. Hate it when I write down the wrong reference. Well, let me go to the second. Proverbs twenty one thirteen. I hope I got this one right. Now, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, when you cry, you won't be heard. I wish I could find I'll have to get that other passage. Oh, it's Psalm. No wonder. Don't do this, uh, preacher boys, when you uh, get in the pulpit. This is, I'm telling you what to not to do today. I'm just giving examples here. Okay, Psalm 18. And verse 25 and 26. I couldn't read my handwriting. He says, With the merciful thou shalt show thyself merciful. With an upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. With the pure thou shalt show thyself pure. And with the froward thou shalt show thyself froward. In other words, God is going to react as you did. Uh, again, this isn't how God works at all in His decree. That's not what we're talking about here. But how you, were going, how you treat others is how God is going to treat you at judgment. Now, notice the last clause, thirdly, in this passage. For he shall have judgment without mercy, that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. I think what he means here is that, of course, obviously, mercy is shown to us in Christ, isn't it? 
And mercy is shown to us uh, in the fact as we show mercy, as he's backing up what he's already stated there, and when judgment comes, we will be having mercy. And thus, if we've shown mercy to others in this life and we haven't been partial, then we can expect mercy at the day of judgment. And again, this is not teaching here, as we'll show you in a few moments. It has nothing to do with work salvation. It is no more than what he said on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And I'll get into that in a few moments. First of all, from the application as we close here this morning. See here a proof that the law has not been abrogated, and that children simply means done away with, as some teach today. We see a proof from the New Testament and actually several places that the law has not been done away as some would have us to believe today. And notice also James here has no fear of bringing the law of God in to discuss matters dealing with love. You know, we think, well, if you're going to talk about love, then obviously you talk about Christ and His great love to us and Him coming to this world. That's all true. And that is a motivation to love. That's a demonstration of God's love. But brethren, to put that in the concrete, he brings up the law of God. The Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He's also using this to move us to obedience, doesn't he? So the law then, you're not being legalistic when you quote someone the law and say you ought to obey because the commandments say so. That's not legalistic. That's Bible. That's exactly what James does here, doesn't he? And he warns us that this is sin if we transgress in this matter, as it is against the law of God. So does it sound like by James's notion, or Paul, or John for that matter, that God has somehow, in some way, done away with the law of God as a way to show us how to live holy before him? Can you honestly read these verses and come up with a view that states that somehow the cross put away the law for activity dealing with sin and telling us what sin is and directing us in the ways of righteousness? I cannot see this any other way. To me, it's a heart problem from these brethren. Paul said, that he loved it in his I delight in the law of God after the inward man. So these fellows who are always running around telling us what the law cannot do and won't do in this instance, you wonder, don't you? Now they may be theoretic antinomian, that is they believe it, but thankfully a lot of them are not practical. That is, they don't go out and live it. I'm very thankful for that. But brethren, the fact is still the same. We're not against the law in that sense. Yes, it can never save us. Never would save us. But that's not what Paul and James is dealing with at this point. Secondly, this shows us here that Paul has no difference with James on this matter or James has any conflict with Paul. And this is going to be very important as we begin to look at verse 14 down to the end of this chapter, which is teaching in regards to his understanding of justification, which everybody says, oh, it's very different than Paul. No, it's not. 
Paul up to this point has in been whole agreement with James. He's quoted such things in his own epistles. And he's not about to part with James when it comes to verse 14 on further. Third thing we can see from this is that judgment day is a great motive to move us to obedience. Christian, we are one day all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. Jesus has told His disciples that every word that we speak will be made revealed. So think about that, my friend. And I realize judgment's a long way off, it seems like, you know, and I'm young, I'm strong, and but, you know, to be in reality, according to Paul in Romans 14, or 13, 14, that that day is closer than it was yesterday. And if we do survive tomorrow, it'll just be another day closer that we stand before God. Makes you think now then how we ought to live, doesn't it? Fourthly, look at verse 13. I know it seems to contradict grace in salvation, but it really doesn't. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy. Let me just quote you. Um, this is a fellow that uh, I, I think he said it best. He says, How then is the language to be understood? Is the meaning that by showing mercy to man we are to procure or get mercy from God? And that by withholding it in one case we forfeit in the other? No, for that would make salvation depend on our doings. Be the fruit of personal merit than which nothing is more manifestly and wholly opposed to the pervading spirit and expressed declarations of the Bible. By the deeds of the law, no flesh living can be justified. I'm going to skip some. Then he says, no. What is intended in this obviously is this. By not exhibiting such a loving spirit, not acting such a compassionate part toward our fellow creatures, we prove ourselves utterly destitute of the Christian character, for we want one of its most essential elements and features. Is not the gospel the grandest manifestation ever given to the universe of the perfection in question? Is it not throughout stamped with, pervaded by, the mercy of its divine author? Now it leaves its own impress on all who believe its doctrines and so enjoy its blessings. It brings into conformity with itself as many as come under its power. They are made children of God, bearing His image, copying His example in, in all respects. They cannot, then, but share in His compassions, cannot but possess and reflect as well as experience them through the regenerating power of the Holy Ghost. If we do not show mercy, we put it beyond dispute that we have no part or lot in redemption. No interest in Jesus, for we are without His Spirit. So in other words, we do work out what we are. And if we're not merciful, it shows then we have showed no mercy. We've been shown no mercy. And I think this shows us here the utter impossibility of being justified by the works of the law or even by love in a new covenant sense. Why? 
Because when we miss one point, we've transgressed them all. Who then could be justified by works? Who then can stand before God and say, look at all my merits that I have procured and He's going to come back. Yeah, but you broke this one. And thus you are guilty of all. See, the law cannot save. It was never intended to save. It was intended to bring forth unto us our sin and our utter inability to be justified by our works but only through the merits of Jesus Christ. That's the whole of Romans 3 and 4 in a nutshell. That we are justified by the imputed righteousness of Christ. We obtain forgiveness by the blood that was shed on Calvary and nothing else. And that received by faith alone. But it also demonstrates that when a person is saved, they will. Obey God. Not perfectly, but they will have a repentant heart and begin to serve Him and even treat others differently. And then sixthly, again, let me just illustrate this again because again, He has bring it out here. Judgment is coming. It is a certain fact, unbeliever, here this morning. You can, well, you can deny it and then you're actually lying to yourself because even the law of nature, as it's called, declares it to be so. Romans 1.32 says, Who knowing the judgment of God. There is something that God has put in you that is, a, that is of His image that makes you understand and know that beyond a doubt there is a judgment day that you will be reckoned before God. And how will you stand? Paul tells the folks there on Marl's Hill that he, he has appointed a day in which he will judge every man. There is a day that's coming for that. What are you to do? What are you going to do? I speak to Christians. Think of that. You're going to stand before Him that way. Lost person, listen to me. You have no hope in yourselves. The law here already condemns you. Your only hope again is Christ. That He have mercy on you. And that God will be merciful and grant you repentance and faith. You believe the gospel that's set forth in the New Testament.